morning we're going to be in Mark chapter 10, starting with verse 1. The last time we looked at childlike humility and ministry, and today Jesus is going to teach on marriage and divorce. So jumping in with verse 1, it says, Then he, Jesus, arose from there and came to the region of Judea by the other side of the Jordan. And the people gathered to him again, and as he was accustomed, he taught them again. The Pharisees came and asked him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Testing him. And he answered and said to them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and to dismiss her. And Jesus answered and said to them, Because of the hardness of your heart, he wrote you this precept. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, his disciples asked him about the same manner. This is controversial. Just the fact that I read those 10 verses will be controversial. And just as today we have a society that's gone very far away from what God originally designed, in Jesus' day, also a few thousand years had passed um, from what God had originally designed for marriage. Notice Jesus refers back to Genesis. So we can jump into this and look at it two ways. Number one, we can look at it from our groups. Today in the United States, we're all in groups now. Everybody's fragmented. We're no longer a melting pot. We all want to hold on to our original identities or identities that the government sets up for us. However, so let's take a look at this. Let's go through it and then see possibly or how we should look at this. Through homosexual eyes, somebody can read this and be offended. They could say, there they go, one man, one woman thing that they keep telling us about, right? To somebody who's heterosexual, who maybe are living together or not living together but believe in premarital sex, they may also have a response to this. And they might feel that, you know, somebody's going to be looking for our lifestyle and making a comment. The divorced person may look at this and go, oh, here we go, the condemnation, I got divorced, right? Three marital situations. Number one, the marriage situation where a person wants out of the marriage. As we go through this, they may say, gee, it's so narrow for me to get out of this marriage. You know, I'm, I'm suffering in this situation. Another person may be married, and maybe if they re read a little further in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said that if you're married and you look at somebody else who's not your spouse lustfully, that you've committed adultery in your heart, right? The last situation is, is a marriage that, um, again, is, is struggling, and uh, they, they don't have all the answers. Another situation would be a person who's married and says, now, check this out. This is the other end of the spectrum. I've been married a long time. I've never been divorced. We have a good married marriage. And they look at the situation almost in a sanctimonious fashion, which God doesn't want either. Because maybe the marriage couple who's doing it really well can say, look, I'm doing good in this, in this portion, but there's other sins in a person's life that the Lord may say, hey, this is unacceptable. So how do we look at this, right? God's word and I, by extension, reading God's word will offend some if I haven't already done that. But this is what a pastor is called to do, to go through the difficult scriptures as well as the easy parables that we can go through. 
I would say this, that it's prudent for all of us to put all of our differences aside, to get ourselves out of these segmented categories and look at the Bible the way God wants us to look at it. To look at it and say, well, listen, things have happened. Right? Maybe to be convicted, maybe to allow God to forgive us, maybe to move on and to heal, and maybe to restore uh, the years that the locusts have eaten. Now, I have five caveats that I want, or three, four caveats that I want to throw into this. The first one is that, and I've seen these situations, a person's married, and the other party decides for whatever reason they don't want to be in the marriage anymore, and they leave. And the one person says, well, I wanted to stay in the marriage. And you become a, you can't force somebody to leave. As a matter of fact, there's a, there's a 2C charge in New Jersey penal code for physically trying to restrain somebody. So, so don't try that, all right? Everybody has their free will, okay? The second issue is God has his ideal that men and women would love each other and raise a family and love the children. And it would be really like a storybook kind of thing. That was God's original design. When we break that covenant, it's sin but so are a host of other things that we break, and those sins are forgivable, right? Sometimes, again, in the church, we shouldn't do this, but we tend to categorize, well, I never stole, I never killed, I never got divorced. Again, that's sanctimonious, and it's not, it's self-righteous, and it's not something that God desires. The third point is that if you are in a situation where you are in danger or you're being physically abused, that is not what the Word is saying. Do not put yourself talk to somebody, there's ways to get help for that too. And the fourth part is that if we just learn to love more, we wouldn't be having this discussion. Jesus said in Matthew 24, because wickedness will increase, the love, of, the love will grow cold, right? And love has grown cold in our society. Even in the church, if you look at the divorce rate compared to the secular world, we're a little bit better, but not by much, Right? Timothy tells us that in the end times that, you know, that wickedness would increase, that there would be a form of godliness, but denying its power, we would become boasters and lovers of ourselves and really not other-centered. So a lot of things to really take into consideration. Now let's go back 2,000 years and look at what Jesus had to deal with. And I did a lot of work on this, a lot of history. What was the situation with the Lord as opposed to what we know what our situation is in our communities? in our lives. But what was the situation with the Lord? Well, the Lord is making his descent. He's heading down south, right, to the other side of the Jordan. Eventually he goes, crosses the Jordan to Jericho, and ends up in Jerusalem where he will finally be crucified. He runs into the Pharisees, who were very strict religious leaders. They were challenging him about marriage and divorce, but they challenged him about a lot of things. Remember, the people loved him because he was real and he was fresh and he was genuine and the religious system was stale and stuffy and and divisive. So, of course, the people loved Jesus and they wanted to get rid of him. So they would often test him. And sometimes you see that on TV. You go look at an interview and we kind of almost shake our head saying they they walk that person right into that that trap. The media will trap somebody of faith to try to set up these, these questions to trap a person. So this is what's going on here. Now, there were two major rabbinical schools at the time. The first one was Rabbi Hillel's school, which we would consider today a liberal theologian. And then it was also the school of Shammai, which had a more strict interpretation of God's word. Now, the religious and uh, political sectors were very divided on which school they wanted to follow. 
and they had a lot of uh, divisiveness based on the subject of marriage, divorce, and remarriage. The Bible said, again, they were testing him. In other words, Jesus, whose camp do you fall into? Do you follow Shammai or do you follow Hillel? Matthew 19, one of them asked him, can a man divorce his wife for any reason? In Hillel's camp, the answer would be yes. Now check this out. As Jesus winds his way down the Jordan, on the east side of the Jordan, in addition to the Galilee, was Herod Antipas's jurisdiction. Remember him? He had John the Baptist beheaded. Why? Because John the Baptist exposed Herod Antipas's unlawful, illegal, immoral relationship with Herodias, his wife. Herod Antipas literally, after a night of partying and drinking, I guess Herodias and, and uh, Herod Antipas were attracted to each other and he decided he was, and this, this woman belonged to his brother, so it was his brother's wife. So he takes his brother's wife, she does it willingly, and that's how that goes. And John the Baptist said, you can't do that. And eventually on Herodias's tugging, uh, he, had, he had lost his head. So possibly they might be thinking, gee, if we trap Jesus, we can get him killed too. We get rid of John the Baptist, we get rid of Jesus. And this is what the world does. It wants to get rid of conviction. You see it. If you're living, living a God-honoring life, there are some in the world that will be very offended by your very presence, and they want to get rid of you. Maybe to get you in trouble at your workplace, to get you fired. Uh, maybe you're not invited to family functions. You know, this is the cost. This is the price that we pay for following the Lord. So I did a little investigation. I, I love investigating, and, and there's, there's your background. Now, this really centers around what? Can a man divorce his wife for any reason? Well, way back in Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4, the law said that if a man found an uncleanness in his wife, he could write her a certificate of divorce and put it in her hand, and then she would be a free woman. This is important to understand, that when we read it, again, we can get offended, but we don't understand the context of the situation. The situation was that a man would... Well, well let, let's just back up for a minute here. Rabbi Hillel said that you could divorce your wife for any reason. And if you read Hillel's writings, okay, one of the things he said, it's ridiculous, that if his wife did not prepare the meal pre properly or she burned the meal, it's, it sounds funny, but it's really horrible that he could divorce her. There was another rabbi, it gets worse, Akiba, who said that if a man over time found another woman who pleased him more, she was more beautiful than his present wife, he could send his wife away. This is sick, by the way. <laughs> the women, I could... Listen, <laughs> ladies, <laughs> I'm with you, sisters, okay? I'm, I'm, I'm digging it. But what did God say? What did God say? Men, love your wives. This stuff... Is, and Jesus had a real problem with this, as you could imagine. This caused chaos in society because guys were letting their wives go and, and they were kind of in limbo and the kids were sort of orphaned and... Man would take a new wife into his house. This was bad news. So God actually, in his mercy, in the law, said to the man, you better give her that certificate because you can't let her go out there in limbo, right? So he would actually give her a certificate and she'd be a free woman, free from the stigma of society, free to remarry, free to do whatever she needed to do. Now, this was really intended, and this is how people destroy God's word as they try to destroy the laws of our land. We can see this in our culture. The junk in the world and all the legal wranglings are getting into the church. And, and we're playing fast and loose with the scripture. And it's wrong. 
So this was actually in a sense that even if the woman was unfaithful to the husband, she also she was given her freedom to go. So, you know, it wasn't a thing where, you know how people, when, they, when they, they're fighting and they're divorcing, and believe me, as a police officer, 23 years, I've seen some stuff that's blood-curdling. And, and I, I work in a relatively nice area in the suburbs. This is going on all across New Jersey, all across the world. It is bad, bad news. You know, how many couples are in family court, divorce court, dividing up the assets? It's really, it's not pretty, right? But what happened was, the law said to the man, you better give her that certificate and free her. You want to play with the scriptures? Let the woman have her freedom, and God will deal with him. So this is what, what's going on here. I have no doubt in my mind that Rabbi Hillel had a large following. As a matter of fact, there are, there are temples today that are named after him. I bet they were filled with men, <laughs> his, his congregations. But the truth is, as I read in secular history, Shammai didn't have a big following, but Hillel did. False teachers always have big followings. Now, I, I've seen that today with pastors who start out good, and they're not satisfied. The numbers are not big enough. The church is not big enough. You know, the building projects, the money's not rolling in, and they, they play on the line of false teaching, and then they go full boat into heretical teaching, and all of a sudden, the numbers start to grow. Because somebody fills a football stadium doesn't mean that they're teaching the truth. Keep that in mind. The person is appealing to the flesh, to the, to the carnal desires, when in church we're supposed to be being appealed to spiritually. That's the part that's supposed to be edified, not the flesh. The flesh should be left at the door when we come into the church. So this was God's way. Number one, men, love your wives. It's reiterated in the New Testament. And if God repeats himself, it's something we need to listen to. Number two, if you're going to play this game, give the woman her freedom. So that's what you have going on. Pretty sad, isn't it? Verse three. And he, Jesus, answered and said to them, what did Moses command you? And Jesus could read their thoughts if they were thinking Hillel Shammai. He said, let's go back to Moses. So the Lord's response was, let's go back to the beginning. Where did Moses get his authority from? He got it from the Father. Even today in Judaism, uh, most forms of Judaism, and they've, they fractured too, but almost all of them revere the first bi- five books of the Bible as inspired. So let's go back to what Moses said, because Moses got his information from God the Father directly. Again, Jesus was not going... I, I would have loved to see today a modern interview like CNN. <laughs> they put somebody, well, here's Jesus. Let's interview him. Hey, so what do you think about this subject today? You know, the polls say that 90% say that, you know, you're, you're out of line here. Could you imagine Jesus? I would just love to see, because he just didn't answer their fallacious premises. And you have these things called syllogisms where you come to a... You make this argument on a faulty premise and you say, you know, here's the answer. But the thing is, if the premise is faulty... You can't come to a good answer. The whole, the whole uh, you know, house of cards pretty much falls apart. And let's go back to what I said before. Today in America, people are interpreting the laws the way they want to interpret them. Men in black robes and women in black robes in the federal courts are just throwing away laws. They're, they're changing rules based on their opinion, on their whims. Right? We see this the Constitution being eviscerated in some precincts. But this is really bad when it gets into the church, the emergent church. They've had these discussions on, on if God's word is still relevant today, this emergent church movement. And basically, 
they say that we're going to wait five or ten years and we're going to discuss it. And we're going to come back and see if God's word really applies today, if it's still relevant. Well, where do you draw the line if it's not relevant? Remember, Jesus went back to Genesis. In the beginning, he made the male and female, right? Be fruitful and multiply. Verse 4. They said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and to dismiss her. Again, they thought they might have cornered him. Five. And Jesus answered and said to them, It's because of the hardness of your heart that he wrote you this precept. You find something interesting with personal pronouns here? He didn't say their heart. He said your heart. Because the religious leaders in the first century had that same spirit as the people that God had to rebuke uh, you know, more than a thousand years ago. If you remember Matthew 23, when he, again he's rebuking the religious leaders and he speaks about you murdered the prophets. They weren't even there. They, were, they weren't even a baby. Their parent, grandparents weren't even born yet. But he assigns this spirit to them. Right? And we can see that play, play out over and over. Uh, the apostle, the disciple John, speaks about Antichrist. Well, there is an Antichrist to come in our future, but there are people that fit that profile over many, many years. They take that satanically inspired uh, characteristic, and they are a type of Antichrist. So you see a lot of fulfillments in the scripture. You think that we would learn as human beings, but apparently we don't. I think the first thing that you want to attack, if you, can, if you can dumb down a population and you want to control them, the first thing you attack is, not mathematics, it's history. Destroy history. Don't tell them about the rise of fascism and socialism. Don't talk to them about you know, different things and dictators that have taken over the world. You just, you just dumb them down. So we don't say, gee, that looks like something. I'm scratching my head. I read that in a history book. I don't like that. We just don't know. We're just ignorant sheep. You know, fill the classrooms with all kind of other stuff, but don't teach them history. Or just gloss over it. Verse 6. Jesus said, but from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his wife, his, I'm sorry, leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. Now, Jesus goes all the way back to Genesis 1.27 and 2.21 through 25. And I read this at weddings. At the end, I just recently did a wedding. What God has joined together, let not man separate. You notice Jesus goes back to Genesis a lot in the scripture. He uses the Old Testament. How does some today and some denominations go with the world and say the Old Testament or Genesis was an allegory? How does that happen? So Jesus is talk, talking about things that are fairy tales. Well, what do we think of Jesus? You see how everything starts to come apart? And that's the design, by the way. Verse 8. If we go back to Genesis, well, let's, let's go to 2 Corinthians 6, 14 first. You don't have to turn there. The Apostle Paul speaks about a married couple as being yoked. Some of these images are not terribly flattering. So if you had a, an ox, a big ox, and a little junkyard dog and put a yoke, a yoke basically looks like an M, and on the bottom it has a, a gate that holds the two animals in place. It goes over their shoulders, and it allows them to together you know, do work in the fields. If you have dissimilar animals, what happens is the work doesn't get done. Even the stronger animal really can't do his job because he's kind of pulling the little junkyard dog with him. So there's a problem there. When he speaks about us in marriage, he says that it's like we're, it's like we're being yoked. The husband and wife both have their yokes. They're joined together and they have to work together. 
Genesis is even more, to me, impressive, where Genesis says the two become one flesh. Now, the word in the Hebrew is similar to glued or epoxy. This is not something that we should take lightly. I have here a little show and tell. This is my chrome-plated semi-automatic. For those listening, it's a glue gun. (laughs) This is my glue gun. As you can see, it's taken a lot of abuse over the years. But Genesis says that when the man and the woman come together, they get glued. So especially for you young folks looking to get married, if you like, you can come up here. I'll go up one side of one of you, down the other side, put you together, tie you together for about a day, let it harden, and let's see how you do together. Because everything that you do, you do together as a married couple. And I've been married for 18 years, and I've got to tell you, sometimes it's an annoyance. (laughs) You didn't let me finish. (laughs) If you ask my wife, she will tell you the same thing. We're madly in love, we're madly passionate with each other. However, when you're constantly on top of each other in the house, you know, I think of, I say to my wife, because sometimes I could be manic. I get very excited and I talk a lot. And in the morning, she needs to have her coffee. And I'm like, you know, when when I get retired, when I go to get retired, I said, I know you're going to ask me to find something else to do. Go do more office hours at the church. But this is what being glued is. And I try to make light of it because it is funny. And I think humor really holds a relationship together. Well, not as good as this glue. But the point I'm trying to make is that, listen, you know, he's so dreamy. She's so beautiful. He sings to me. She, I don't know, goes shopping for me, whatever the case may be, you know. When I, be, when I got married, my wife threw away all my bachelor furniture, by the way. You know, little by little, it, it went out. So this is what happened when we get married. So really, when you think of getting married, think about this glue gun. So keep this in your mind, because this is what it entails. You know, it's, and what's the problem with that? What is the problem with, with marriage at times? It's because we're selfish. Because even though we come to the cross, it's, it's better when we're believers because we have the Lord and the Holy Spirit to help us, but it's, it can be very difficult because we're still self-centered. You know, we're st- we still want our own ways. So here's my question for those in the church. If you've been married close to 40 years or more, would you please raise your hand? All right. That's the proper response to that. Some of these folks have been married almost twice as long as some of the teens and the young adults here. Think about that for a moment. They've been married for twice as long as you've been alive. So I would say that, and first let me say this, you guys all madly in love with each other? Good, good, good. (laughs) The ones who said yes, if you're having problems in your relationship, seriously, talk to one of them because... I tell you, in the beginning, not all the way back to Genesis, but when my wife and I got together, we both have a very similar personality, which can be a little rough. And in the first year, too, we really struggled heavily. Talked about divorce, and and I'm just being transparent from the pulpit. We did find an older couple in the Lord, and an older couple in the Lord to help us through. And it was certainly worth it, because they gave us tools. And listen, it's embarrassing. It really is. You know, when my wife goes to the lady and says, he did, so now four people know. (laughs) Great. And then I have to hear from the guy, and it's, I didn't have easy people that 
counseled Heather and I. It's a little embarrassing, but it's really worth it because, you know, sometimes things need to be exposed. And sometimes we need to go to somebody who's got more wisdom than us and have them help us through it. So, you want to get married? Think of this. When you are called to higher things as a married couple, it gets even more difficult. The marriage has to be stronger. So let's say you're running a business together, okay? There's pressures. If you're raising a large family, there's pressures. If you're in ministry, there's pressures. I've had a lot of people over the years tell me, oh, I'm like a son, I'm like a father, I'm like a brother. Only when I say something they don't like, they leave the church. But you know, the person who's always there is my wife. And my wife shares me with the congregation. And I've had a few incidences where people are so in a hurry to get to me, I could be having my arm around or holding her hand, they'll completely ignore her and talk to me. She's my other half. And at times, she's my better half. Trust me. So I don't know without God, definitely without God, I couldn't do it. But I don't think I could do this without my wife either. So just let that... Yes, thank you. Okay. Three scenarios for how to leave a relationship, and I'm just only saying this because people ask me. So in the marriage, one is, as the Bible says clearly, adultery. Um, God doesn't expect a person to stay in that relationship if a person, the other party, is unfaithful. Now, I know in few instances that some have chosen to forgive that and continue to stay married, and that's, that's allowable too. Uh, that's, that takes a remarkable person to be able to forgive something like that, but you know, want more power to them. So adultery. The other one is death, and we prefer natural causes, okay? <laughs> Pastor Joe said, no, Pastor Joe didn't say. <laughs> Romans 7, 1 through 3 covers that. And 3 in 1 Corinthians 7, 14 through 15 is desertion. I, I talked before, if one party just does not want to stay in the relationship, what are you going to do? You... You know, it, it, it's going to happen. It's going gonna, it's gonna to run its course. Now, this is not designed, this message, and this is the when pastors go through the Bible verse by verse, we don't get to pick our favorite parts and just keep saying them over and over again from the pulpit. It takes, it's a harder thing to actually go through the Bible verse by verse and get into the parts that are unpopular, but it's what we do. If you'll notice that in the air conditioners, there's two time zones. That one is usually cooler when it's a tougher message to keep me from sweating, okay? <laughs> Do not let the scripture condemn. Whatever state you're in, if you want to be convicted of something that happened in the past, you ask for forgiveness, and Jesus paid for that sin at the cross, and then we move on, right? The Bible is here more to edify than anything else. So... Marriage is a partnership. In the beginning, God created us to continue the species because we have a, really a time limit, an expiration date on the, on, the, on the human body. So in order to continue to populate the earth, we marry, we procreate. There's companionship, there's partnership, and there's purpose. Now, like I said before, I would tell you that my wife and I would never argue if she always... <laughs> agreed with what I said and did what I said. That's a true statement. However, she, thank you for letting me finish, she could say the same thing. You see where I'm going with this? 
We see things from our own perspectives. When we're married, we have to come out of ourselves and put self on the shelf and try to minister to somebody other. And you find that the more other-centered we are in a relationship, it actually is a synergistic effect and the marriage actually gets better. Verse 10. And in the house, his disciples asked him again about the same matter. Oftentimes the disciples would wait till Jesus was alone. They would hear a public teaching and say, we still got questions. So he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. It's his fault. It's his crime or his breaking the law, so to speak. And if a woman divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. This must have been shocking for the disciples to hear. And I know this because if I go back to Matthew 19.10, his disciples said to him, if such is the case of the man with his wife, it is better not to marry. Anybody ever hear that before from the disciples? Pretty amazing, isn't it? They were human beings like you and I, and Jesus had to do a lot of work with them. He had to unbrainwash them from the culture, as he often has to do with us. Some of these guys were married, so this is a fascinating statement. They were almost starting to maybe possibly gravitate to some of the teachings, the popular rabbinical teachings. And I'll tell you this, any church, any group of believers in a, in a decadent society, why was the Corinthian church so bad? Why did the Apostle Paul have to rebuke them so much? Because they were in the middle of Corinth, and Corinth was a bad place. And some of that stuff got into the church, and Paul had to address it. So Jesus had a lot of work to do with the disciples, and he also, I would say, has a lot of work to do with the American Western Christian culture, because we're flooded with a lot of negative junk too. And if we're only getting our word on a Sunday morning for 35 minutes... Um, you can see how the tails, scales can be tipped in the wrong direction. Let's take this a step further. Why would the disciples hold views of religious teachers greater or higher than God's word in some instances? I would ask you this other question in typical rabbinical style. Why do some Christians today hold heretical views espoused by the Trinity Broadcasting Network and a whole host of Christian books and media? Very simple. Read your Bibles. Read your Bibles. If you're a new believer... Put the books aside, read the Bible first, and get a base, a foundation of the Word of God. Otherwise, you're just going to get confused. Authors can take anything with 400 pages, and by the time they're done, they can take the Ten Commandments and turn it into the Ten Suggestions by the end of the book. So be very careful with that. The disciples had a walking Bible with them. Jesus was the Lagos. Everything he said was perfectly formed, and it came from God's mind. Jesus was literally God's mouthpiece on earth. So they got to walk every day with the walking, talking, you know, illustrative Bible. We have these that we can read. Now, we've done this before for people who maybe have had trouble with their eyes temporarily uh, or permanently. We'll get you material. We'll pay for it. You can put the earbuds in. You can hear the Bible being narrated. Uh, we definitely want you to get the Bible. And you know what that does? That inoculates you from me teaching things that are false. What better deal do you have than that? Verse 13, last few verses that we're going to cover. Then they brought young children to him that he might touch them, but the disciples rebuked those who brought them. But when Jesus saw it, he was greatly displeased and said to them, Let the little children come to me and do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of God. Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. And he took them up in his arms, put his hands on them, and blessed them. So a custom in those days was to have respected rabbis bless children. 
That was just a custom. Of course, Jesus was growing in popularity. They saw him do miracles, and a lot of people brought their children to Jesus for Jesus to bless them. Jesus just had this discussion. We just covered this with the disciples about how he was, they were supposed to receive children. Why are we going through this again? Probably because they felt that as the Lord makes his way closer to Jerusalem, that this was trivial, that he needed to conserve his energy, he needed to rest, and they didn't want him to be bothered by what they considered trivial matters. Now, Jesus reiterates this whole childlike spirit thing back to his disciples. First of all, you have to receive the children. In addition to that, you, you have to be received as a child. Now, I'm sure Jesus didn't find the bratty kids to pick up, but not the childish kids, but the childlike kids. And that's what he wants out of us as a church. Not brattiness, not childishness. Apostle Paul is very clear on that. But he wants childlikeness. Sometimes when we become adults, we allow our hurts, our pain, our uh, negative experiences to form us as adults. And we almost long for the days of going back to the innocence we see children playing. You don't see prejudice, right? You don't see, you know, hatred. A lot of that stuff kind of has to be learned. We can become bitter. We can become angry. We can build up walls, and it could form us in who we are as adults. And Jesus is saying, you got to put that stuff aside. Go back. Look at those kids. Remember what it was like? I remember the innocence of being a child, you know? And then we become adults. And we can become hard and jaded and, you know, and have callousness around our hearts. So Jesus wanted his disciples, number one, to receive the kids and to be like children when we bring the gospel. What is our attitude towards the youth, the next generation? You know churches die, they fold and they close their doors because they don't attract the youth. The old adage, children should be seen and not heard, it's not biblical, right? How do we, in Calvary Chapel treat our children? How important is the children's ministry? Right? How important is, is it to us that our kids actually hear biblical instructions on their level? I can tell you that I'm dealing with, and <laughs> we had some successive Sundays where we brought college guys and gals up or going to the military that we prayed over. And I remember them literally as little kids. Some of them I watched in my former church in the children's ministry, and now they're going to college, going to the military, they're getting married. It's an amazing thing to see. Actually, Katie was up here playing on short notice, and here's a young lady who I remember, you know, little kid, and then she grew up. She's in the teens, teen ministry. She's played on the worship team. I, don't, I have no doubt in my mind that when she goes off to college or into the world, that there's nobody that's going to be able to Un, to, to make her not believe in the Lord. I don't see it happening because she's just been grown up in the Lord. I feel, I feel like I'm old now, you know, watching things happen <laughs> over 18, 19, 20 years, but uh, it's really heartwarming. You know, it's a blessing. I love my son so much, but I love your kids too, you know? I love it when I'm, I'm in the hallway and they run up to me and they, they do the kung fu grip around my legs and latch onto me. And the adults, you guys are all very understanding. You, you see it happening as you're talking to me, and you're good with it. But that's the attitude that we need to have towards the children. Because one day, we'll age out in leadership, and they'll be running the church. Right? Those that are going to college, the military now, when they come back and establish themselves, 
They might be the future leaders. They might be the ones now that disciple the younger kids and are teaching the younger kids, and it's this succession that happens. Otherwise, a church dies, and it closes its doors. So whether we're talking about marriage or how to treat the youth, it boils down to a few things, or two things. What type of Christ do we want to reflect? Do we want to reflect the self-centered Christ? Well, the world is doing it, so therefore I'm free to do it. When we look at marriage, do we want to reflect what the world is doing? It Well, the culture's doing it, and these emergent church people say that it's really not relevant anymore so that I can do it. Here, let me leave you with something. And let me tell you beforehand, I don't have any announcements after the service. What if my wife and I decided it's not working? We're going to get divorced. How would it affect you guys? How would you feel? Could you allow me to, to counsel you? Would, would that happen? All right, if that was something that was fresh? How would you look at the leadership of this church? What if we all decided as pastors and elders, we're, we're going to get divorced, we're going to do what everybody in the world is doing. But why is it different for me than it is for anybody here? Because I'm held to a higher standard, yes, but we're all believers and we all reflect Christ. So again, whatever's happened in the past, you know what? It's not something that we should feel condemned or dwell on. We repent and we let it go. Whatever state we're in, as the Bible says, that's the way we minister. We take the instruction of the world, then we move forward from here, not looking back. So the same thing with the children. Do we live a life of obedience and maybe give, give of our time and pay attention to the children? Pay attention to the little ones that Jesus speaks of. Pay attention to the vulnerable ones in society. Or do we say, me, 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 me with my time? Or do we live a life of obedience to what the Lord says? And we look out to others and try to pour into them and minister and disciple them. Again, it comes down to two things. Are we Christians that want to do what we want to do and we're me-centered? Or do we, or do we just even some have the attitude, well, I serve on Sunday, that's good enough, and do whatever they want the rest of the week? Is that what the Bible calls us to do? Are we just Sunday Christians? Do we want to be, as Calvary Chapel, just a Sunday church? Or do we want to be Christians every day? Right? Wouldn't it be embarrassing if, if somebody from my work came and sat here and said to you guys as you were leaving, he's a different person at work. You should see him. He's not the person you think he is. That would be embarrassing for me, wouldn't it? What about you? I would just say this. The bottom line is that we have to believe that God can do anything. Some of the things that we're asked to do are really literally impossible. For me, I look at the scripture. I'm convicted. I'm like, I'm still struggling with this. I need your help, Lord. The power of the Holy Spirit that we're sealed with Jesus said, for these things, it's impossible for man, but all things are possible with God. We either believe that, brothers and sisters, or we don't believe that. We don't believe it, our actions show it, all day long, all week long. Or we believe it, or we go to God for everything, even before things actually take place, and we ask him for wisdom and good instruction then. So I just would leave us with this. Do we believe that God can do anything in our present situation, or do we not? And do we act on that accordingly? Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we just thank you for your word as always. It's a blessing.